Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 233, and today we are going to be talking about how you can 10x the impact you have by understanding the four stages of a business. If you've not heard of him, my guest's name today is Daniel Marcos, and he is the co-founder of the Growth Institute with the one and only Vern Hardish, who is the founder of Scaling Up. Daniel is a sought-after keynote speaker and a CEO coach, and he's on a mission to help 1 million entrepreneurs scale their impact and reduce the drama in the process. He's a member of YPO and EO, and he's a certified coach in the Scaling Up methodology. He's a graduate of EO's premier CEO program, The Birthing of Giants, and he holds a BS in industrial and systems engineering from Monterey Tech and an MBA from Babson College. Daniel was an early entrepreneur and he started a t-shirt business at the age of eight and then partnered with a car dealing franchise to provide cleaning services throughout his high school years. In the year 2000, he built an online trading business that was acquired within six months by what was Argentina's largest financial player at the time. Daniel's next business was launched just before the untimely crash of the financial markets in 2008, which he's going to share a lot about. And his business was shut down, which took Daniel $1 million into debt. And then three phone calls changed his life. Daniel ended up partnering with Vern Hardish in 2012 to bring executive training to the masses. In less than a decade, the Growth Institute has been recognized among the top 5,000 fastest growing companies in the U.S. with over 40,000 members across 64 countries. On today's episode, Daniel is going to be sharing his entrepreneurial journey and why that led him to partnering up with Vern Hardish and starting the Growth Institute. After 11 years of coaching and working with thousands of businesses, Daniel had this epiphany that he needed to write this book called Impact X and why there are four stages to every business. And it came to him after he realized that depending on where the business owner was in their journey, the set of books he would recommend would be wildly different. Your understanding of these four stages can greatly impact the strategies that you deploy and the choices that you make. And the reason that I love this episode is because Daniel and I have a very practical discussion about how each stage impacts the strategies that you should be deploying to get to the next stage, or at least provide yourself with some context to determine whether you want to scale up to the next stage and dominate your industry, or whether you want to stay at a certain stage that Daniel calls the perfect blend of profits and drama. The big takeaway is it's a choice. And in order to make the choice, you have to understand the context that you're making that choice in, and you're choosing to tackle the challenges that are in front of you based on the stage that you're trying to get to. And after you're done understanding these four stages, I think the best thing that you can do is to educate yourself on how to grow the value of your business with an end in mind. So if your goal is to get to one of those stages, make sure that you're doing it in the right way so you're not wasting time or money. And the best way to do that is go check out our Intentional Growth online course. Go to arcona.io, go to the education tab. If you want more flexibility, you can choose to do it on your own for a thousand bucks, or you can choose to hire Arcona for four coaching calls over four weeks, which is 2,000 bucks. Go check it out, arcona.io. And without further ado, here's Daniel Marcos, the four stages of a business and how to have the perfect blend of drama and profits. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. 
Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Daniel, how are you doing today? Hey, Ryan. Thank you very much for the invitation. Super excited to be here. Yeah, me too. we got lots of books in the backgrounds here. And, uh, <laughs> and they're for real. <laughs> yeah, they're for we real. Like we were just talking about we're not like backing into a green screen or anything That's like correct. that. <laughs> um, I was just saying right before we hit record that I've been following as I after we sold the business and I was just in like a craze of digesting content from Bo Burlingham and John Warlow and traction and scaling up. And then I just, I, so you were obviously in that uh, category and since then, I was telling uh, your team when we were scheduling this that I've been seeing your LinkedIn and Facebook ads for years. So, I, you know, I feel like I know you. <laughs> I'm sorry um, for that. <laughs> well, hopefully you were putting out some pretty good and presentable ads. So I, I, it's all uh, all respect here. So for the listeners that might not be familiar with you, why don't you just give us the, the rundown of you, your background, kind of the things you're associated with, and then we can dive into some of the content you were talking about. So I was born and I was born in Monterrey, Mexico, grew up in Mexico City. And I, very young, I did several small companies. When I was, indeed, I think my first company was when I was like eight or nine. I did a uh, aquarium and sold fish. I produced oh. and grew fish in my half. I, ha I had a tank that I brought fish and then helped them reproduce and everything and then sold them. So since I was very young, and then I sold t-shirts and did all these kind of things. And then my... When I was in high school, uh, they put a new rule in Mexico City. Mexico City, it's a very big city, 24 million people. So to be able to be able to protect pollution, all that, they put a rule that you, one day a week, your car could not go to the streets. So on Tuesday, huh. your car just, you couldn't get your car to the street. And if you if you drive your car and you were pulled over, it was like a very big fine, probably two $3,000. Wow. Uh, and then it was probably, it was a complicated thing. So people were really mad. They couldn't use their car one day a week. So we, we found this uh, auto-detail franchise that you put everything on the van, water, electricity, everything. So people, before they leave to the office, they pull their car and put them outside on the street. And we did a full auto-detail. Like it took us like five or six hours per car. Oh, super cool. But the car was like new when we bring it back. And that was kind of my first real business. I did it through high school. So it was kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then I graduate, uh, sorry, I went to college. I was going to start another business. And my father was worried that I was going to start another business because I was very distracted by the business in school. So he called my older brother and said, hey, please get a job for your brother. If, if I'm the dad, I try to get him a job, he's going to get Protect mad. him, protect him. <laughs> but if, you're, if you're the older brother, you have to do your job, right? So my brother helped me get a job in a brokerage house in the trading floor. Oh. And I got a really great view of how the world runs in the stock market and how the, the real big money moves. And that's been a huge learning for me today. Um, I was going to all the board meetings and seeing all the investors and the investors' calls and the rest. And we started trading puts and calls and all these derivatives. It was a great learning experience. And while I was there, through some connections with my family, I got to get a job in Hong Kong. So Hong I Kong. went, uh, the day I graduate, that night, I went to my party. The next morning, 7 a.m., I was in the airport. And I flew to Hong Kong uh, to work for two years at the Mexican uh, consulate in Hong Kong. And I was in charge of helping the transition between uh, Hong Kong going from England to China. I was responsible for the relationship with Mexico. 
Uh, quick side, side note, Mexico recognized the Communist Party of China before the US. We were the first country in America to recognize the, the new party that mm -hmm. was the, the Communist Party when they took over. Uh, and the, the, the um, let's say the Democrat uh, Party went to Taiwan and that's when Taiwan and China gets divided and the Communist Party take over China. And Mexico uh, uh, was the first country in America to recognize the new government. And they've always had a special relationship with Mexico because of that. So there was going to be a lot of events and a, a lot of mm -hmm. delegations from Mexico. So they want to have a Mexican to be kind of heading that. I'm sure the, the business and the trade one exploded after that. It was it was really, really good. My job was more on the government side. So I received a lot of senators and an ex-president and all that to go and have all these nice relationship and meetings and all that. It was a lot of fun. I had a couple of meetings, like Alan Greenspan. I had one day dinner with oh, Alan Greenspan and the Mexican Minister of Finance and stuff. So it was a lot of fun. But at that time, the internet was exploding. It was 1997, 1998. And I was seeing all these magazines of kids in the U.S. with all this money and in the covers of the magazines. And I was like, I need to do that. <laughs> so I resigned to my job uh, after two years, went back to Mexico. And my job was to, or my idea was to start Mexican startup, a text internet company. And I said, okay, what can I do? And the thing that I knew the best was finance because my last work on the brokerage house. So I said, I'm going to do E-Trade for Mexico. So I built the first uh, electronic trading house uh, or, or stock trading company for the country. And I went to the brokerage, sorry, to the government and asked for a license. Um, in the US and Mexico is very different. Just to give you an idea, Mexico has today, has we've had a boom in banks. I think we have 13 or 14 banks in the whole country. The oh, US wow. has like, yeah. Banks, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So at that moment, there were four banks in the country and like six brokerage houses. So I went and asked for a brokerage house when I was like 25. And they <laughs> what were was like, the reaction? It, it was a joke. Like, are you joking? And I was like, no, I'm not joking. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> working the government there, whatever. <laughs> no, we're never going to give a brokerage license to a 25-year-old. So get out of here. <laughs> so I went to my house and I talked with friends and my parents. And my decision was, what can I do? When E-Trade wants to come to Mexico, I will have what they need so they could have acquired me or they need to acquire me. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, I came up with a list of two things. They want to have a team that could run their operations in Mexico and they want a list of clients that know how to trade online. So I built like Yahoo Finance for the Mexican market. And that's what we, that we started doing with the idea of getting a brokerage house later. And very early into uh, that, I had a competitor in Argentina called Patagon. They already had a brokerage house in Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela. And they went to JP Morgan to get this really big line. They already raised like $8 million from Chase. Okay. Um, they want to raise like $50 million with JP Morgan. And when they went to JP Morgan, they said, hey, we want to be the leaders of Latin America. And if you understand a little bit of Latin America, the two biggest countries by far are Mexico and Brazil. Mm -hmm. So JP Morgan said, we love the story. We love the idea. But you could not say you're the dominant player in the market if you don't have Mexico and Brazil. Go and buy the number one player in Mexico, buy the number one player in Brazil and call me. And so he called me and said, I have a line of a line or an investment of $50 million. I need to buy someone in Mexico. You're the first. If you don't accept, I'm going to go and get to the second one and the third until I buy someone. Yeah, they're on a mission. Like, That's it. Right. Because it was it was going to be game over. Someone mm -hmm. coming with 50 million to I've raised 200,000 when I did my startup. So someone how, coming how long into your, uh, how long into the business uh, was this? Like eight months, nine months okay. into oh, it. Oh, wow, not, but not long at all. Yeah. How was um, the growth up until that point? 
pretty decent. Uh, yeah. We were we we put we were the first ones to put news and the stock market. Let's say the the, the ticker the, symbols, the and ticker all symbols, like, everything yeah, yeah. of the Mexican market uh, online. No and by the way, way, interestingly, in Mexico we had just one like Reuters. You know, you have Reuters in the US have all this data on the on the on the screens. There was one Mexican company. So I when I went to them and said I want to buy your feed. And they laughed at me and said, like, how can I give you the jewel of the crown? And I had a pretty tough negotiation. I got very lucky with the, with the CEO. And I don't know why he liked me. I was this young kid emailing and sending me letters and videos. And, <laughs> Not like, understanding the word the no, right? <laughs> yeah. And indeed, it was interesting. One day he called me and said, the agreement is done. I'm not going to discuss. I'm not going to negotiate anything. You have to go to my office in Mexico City, because he was in Monterey. If you don't like the deal, that's it. If you're okay with the deal, sign it. And I was like, okay. Went to the office, and it was exactly what I needed. Oh, that's awesome. But part of that, I had to give him like 5% of the company. But it was good because then he gave me exclusivity. So I was the only one that have the opportunity to put the stock quotes online wow. from the only Reuters in the country. That's some crazy timing. So it was, yeah. it, I, I was very lucky. I was very persistent, <laughs> uh, but very lucky. <laughs> um, so what, whatever. So. I sold to this Argentinian company called Patagon. Um, uh, they bought a, the biggest player in Brazil, another entrepreneur that he was doing amazing things, uh, Netrail. And next Monday, we woke up in New York, went to JP Morgan, said, okay, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Venezuela, give us 50 million. And JP Morgan helped us. We raised 53 million. We got Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Intel, Microsoft. Like it was the best dream. Uh, run you could get. Uh, Carlos Slim from Mexico and stuff. And we start growing like crazy. Did you, um, did you have any equity in the new business or did you yes. cash out completely? Or uh, was I, there any, they, like they paid me all my stocks and then they gave me a really big bonus in options for me to be their head of Mexico and Central America. Okay, cool. So I so stayed a major CEO. incentive to, to go out there and scale the heck That's out correct. of it. That's yeah. correct. That's uh, correct. Indeed, uh, we sold it, I'll tell you later, but we sold it eight months later. The market Again? was very, very hot. It was, it was. Yeah, crazy yeah. Hot. You're you're selling it on hockey stick growth. That's correct. <laughs> but when we sold to Santander Aquaros, the Mexican, sorry, the Spanish bank, uh, and there were a list of 13 key employees the day they bought. I was one of the 13. And if the 13 we did not stay with all our stock, the deal was not going to go through. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a great experience. Uh, had a due diligence with Jim Morgan on the rest. So that really obligate me to grow really, really fast, very, very mm -hmm. young. Mm -hmm. So I sold, I was 26 when we sold to Santander and I was 28 or 29 when I left Santander. And it was, it was a pretty big operation. What were your plans after? I mean, like, like, so, and why did you leave? Like, so what was the next, what was the next um, journey? I did what I could do. We opened five banks, six brokerage houses in the region. We had 1200 employees. It was time to leave. And, and we had spent, in all, in and out, $1.2 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the, in the 2000s, that was that was, money. that was before we were printing trillions, right? That's correct. We, you weren't <laughs> seeing the, the T's yet. <laughs> that was correct. when the B was a big deal. And it was, it was getting full with a lot of really older people and well, very banking structure. And it was not the right thing for me. So I left uh, after two years of being the CEO. Um, and... I left in an April and I hired a lot of MBAs from Harvard and Stanford and Kellogg and, and I had all these, but they were kids, both well, kids now, they were 
my age or, or even older than me, but they had all this jargon and they did this presentation with these cool things. <laughs> and I felt that I needed all, my, all that knowledge. So I said, I want to go to an MBA and kind of after that, rebuild another business. So I went to Babson, supposedly the best business school for entrepreneurs, did my MBA there, graduated with honors, and then went back. Uh, I went to prove myself in the US. So I went to Austin, opened a mortgage bank in 2004. We did a subprime mortgage bank in 2004. You have oh, to geez. expect what I'm, happened later. Yeah, enough said, right? <laughs> so quick, quick, quick story. We got a line of credit with Goldman Sachs, $500 million to give loans to undocumented Hispanics. So my business was all undocumented Hispanics. Hmm. Of course, that portfolio got crushed yeah, in 2007. No so I got a call one day. So we got it through a friend of mine in San Diego. And my friend called me one day and said, no more. I was like, what do you mean no more? I have like 80 on the pipeline. And he said, no more. You shut everything down, fire your employees. And by the way, the one you closed yesterday, you have to go and get the guy out of his house. So I had to rent a truck, oh go to someone's house, get all those things out, change the lock, and give him his, back, his checks back. You didn't know that re repo man was part of your job description, right? It was, it was hard. I, it's probably the toughest week I've had in my life. I fired 120 people. Um, we lost a bunch, a lot of money. It was, it was tough. What was your biggest learning lesson out of it? Like going into the next thing, like what, like what, did you reflect in that moment? I'm sure you've done it a lot over the years, but what was the kind of the, when you look back and go, okay, here's kind of the big takeaway. So the biggest mistake we make as entrepreneurs is we believe that our business and, and us were the same thing. And when your business is a failure, you believe you're a failure. And that, send me in a rabbit hole that I, I will never want to be back there. And there were, I, I had probably six months in, in big depression, gained a lot of weight, had a lot of uh, marital issues with my wife. It was, it was, it was a tough uh, space in my life. Hey, just a small comment on that, Daniel. I, uh, the, the reason that the show exists and my business exists and what we're doing is I read Bo Burlingham's finished big book. Yep. And I was just like, Mm, I wish I would have read this before we would have sold and made that drastic decision. Cause you just, <laughs> there's this, like, you know, like you said, it's like your identity, your ego, the business, everything, everything, just big, big, huge, you know, ball of uh, yarn. <laughs> the amount of entrepreneurs or CEOs or leaders of companies after they sold, sell their company, they get depressed. It's really high, like really high. Even if you sold it and make a bunch, a lot of money, mm -hmm. you get depressed. What do you think? Imagine the if, if you lose your business and you lose your money, that's even worse. Right. Yeah. It doesn't come with a huge, you know, country club price tag that you can brag about, even if you know that's not the real number that went in your bank. So I remember I went to my wife that night and I said, I lost everything, every penny that we have. We have no assets and I have over a million dollars in debt. And that was, that, that, that was the closing because I went to investors and said, okay, we all lost our money. But for us to, we have leases, lines of credit. You have, you know, a business that it's ongoing. Yeah. And I did run over my numbers and it was a little bit over a million dollars in debt. And I said, okay, let's, everyone puts their money and we'll clean the house. And they look at me and say like, uh-uh, we put our money, we already lost our money, that's it, but you own it. So I own it. So what did you do? And then how did you, and you know, what were there anything in like, so you got the debt, which you got financial stress, which, you know, ripples into the- And then I had no job. I'm from Mexico. My visa was attached to my business. So I had to come back to Mexico. It was, it was, it was a lot. So I, there were three phone calls that really changed my life. I will tell one of them. Bernd Harnish, the author of Scaling Up, 
So Vern coached me uh, before, and I went through his program called Burning of Giants in MIT. And that's how EO started and grew. And that, by the way, I'll tell a story later about Burning of Giants. There's a night called the Night of the Living Death. And that's what makes the program the program that is. But let me, let me. so Vern calls yeah. me and said, what are you going to do? And I complain. I think I even cry on the call. I was really in a bad moment. Mm-hmm. And when I finished after like half hour, he said, are you done? And I was like, what do you mean? Are you done complaining? And I was like, uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> and he said, what's yes. next? <laughs> yeah, I guess. And he's like, what's next? <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to go back to Mexico, get a job. And so I need to pay the school for my kids. Like I need to put money and food on the table. And he said, and how are you going to pay your debt? And I said, I have no idea. But I really, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm thinking how to make some money just to pay for, for rent and, and school. Yeah. And he said, why don't you start coaching and become a CEO coach? And I said, no way. I don't trust myself as an entrepreneur. How can I coach others? And he said, that's precisely why. Because you went through such a hard process, they have to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I said, I love the idea. It sounds very sexy. But first, I cannot pay you royalties. I cannot pay you for the license. Like, and I really have to go and get a job. And he said, fine, go and get a job. And on the weekend, start coaching. And with all the money of the coaching, you start paying your debt. And I was like, okay, sounds good. So I said, hey, but I cannot even pay you for licensing and the rest. He said, don't worry. What year is this, Daniel? This was um, 2010, okay. 11 years ago. Um, so I got certified as a scaling up coach back then. Um, and I begin coaching in Mexico uh, over the weekends. And six months after, I was making more money on the weekends than I was making in my full week. So I resigned to my job and became a CEO coach full time. I got a question about that process because the numbers is the, the money is great. I'm curious, what did you do to mentally overcome that that failure feeling or like, hey, now I can coach and I can give advice? Because I think that's kind of tied in that whole identity issue, you know, you know, like trying to get over that. So there, there's there's a lot of things. And here I'll come back to the two calls, the other two calls. So I got several calls when all of this process, but three that were significant. One was Vern. Vern is someone that I admire for many, many years, founder of EO, author of Scaling Up, like really, really important guy in the world and all that. And he called me and said, like, I know you could do this really, really well. And that was that was huge. Uh, then I got a call from a very good friend from high school uh, back then. He was the head of Google in Mexico. He was the first employee of Google in Latin America, and he was head of Google in Mexico. And he calls me and said, hey, they just promoted me to be the head of Google in Latin America, and I need to put someone to be the head of Google Mexico. Would you want to be the CEO of Google Mexico? And I was like, no, I can't. And the guy said, why not? I said, because I just don't trust myself, cannot run it. And I declined the call. So we, we spent like half hour on the call, whatever, and I declined. So we hung the phone. Oh, wow. The next day he called me back and he said, I'm not accepting. You said, no, <laughs> you're going to go through the process. I don't care. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was really big that in my worst moment, I was offered to be the CEO of Mexico of the biggest tech company. Uh, and that was, that, was, that was really big for me. Uh, by the way, I went through the process. I was not offered the number one job. I got offered a number two job. So I got a call from the head recruiter after like six months of interviews, 16 yeah. interviews. It was, it was crazy, the process they had, by the way. And that's on its own. It's a great learning experience. And she called me and said, hey, we love your experience. We love your execution. But we're very worried that you don't understand the core values of Google. So we do not want to offer you the number one position. We want to offer you a number two position. And in one year, we'll make you number one. 
but we want to bring someone that it's a Google employee that understand culture, call values mm-hmm. and everything. And, and that moment, my business, my coaching business was doing very good. Mm-hmm. So I said, the only way I'm going to do it and kill my coaching business is, is if at least I get the number one seat. Mm-hmm. And she said, that's not on the table. Or you accept number two or we'll stop talking. And I said, no, I don't do it. Okay, thank you very much. And she hung up. So I <laughs> called on. her back and said, hey, wait, we're starting to negotiate. And she was like, there's no negotiation. The core yeah. values and the way we run things, it's so important that you get it, that if you're not willing to learn it, then you're not the right candidate. And I told her, hey, my business, coaching business has exploded. That's why I'm do- leaving my job after six months. So if I'm going to do it, it's because it's going to be, it's going to matter. And she said, well, that's the offer today. And I said, thank you very much. I'm not going to take it. And that was it. And then this was the third call um, and was the most important for the mindset. So my parents sent me a letter and they expressed what they were feeling and several other things, very, very important. But there was one thing that I think it what made the change. Uh, they wrote in the letter saying, life gives you very few opportunities to learn fast. And today you have an amazing opportunity to learn fast. And because you have so much pain, you're not learning because you're not really analyzing and, and getting it out. So we recommend that we put it on the table and learn from it. And I said, fine, I'm in. What do we do? So I called them the next day, said, what do we do? And they said, we, we recommend we hire this guy that he leads these kind of sessions. And let's sit down for two or three days and go through a full session. So we got in a room, four white walls, my wife, my mom, my dad, this guy and myself for three days. Oh, how, um, how intense was that? that it, was, been... it was tough. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was, you're putting it all on the table at that point, aren't it you? It was really tough. Uh, but I'm extremely thankful for that because that obligated me to touch bottom and, and put everything on table and accept the blame and the guilt and all that and then start rebuilding. Was so, there a moment that you knew in those three days that you were, you'd overcome and were ready for the next chapter? No, I, I didn't have... So this guy, interesting, his model was to put me down and destroy me the first two days so I could get to bottom and then start rebuilding the last the last mm-hmm. brilliant process. I'm still in contact with him. He's been very, very important for me and my wife. That's awesome. So I didn't see it at that moment, mm-hmm. but he did this process for me to let go of everything and just start from zero. Uh, and I was 35 back then. Okay. So then as you're rebuilding, like what? How did, how does the, how, what was the next chapter? I mean, you got the so, debt, you got a new mindset, you got, you know, there's a lot so, going on, but. Uh, so here's, here's the, where it begins rebuilding, right? So I become a coach. The way you get clients in coaching, all that is you do all these workshops or in that, now you do podcasts. Back then there was nothing of this, right? The, so the you, physical things, the, the yeah, things exactly, we're not doing today. Exactly. <laughs> so I did a two day workshop. I rented a hotel uh, room and all that for to, to do a two-day workshop. And I begged friends to come and send me their cousins. And like, you can't imagine. Like, it was, he was begging to get people. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've probably been, per, I've participated in similar situations. And I got like 25, 30 people coming to the, to the room. And I had all nines and tens uh, at the end. And I got like three or four coaching clients after that. Oh, cool. And it was, it was, impressive i like i i i remember i told my wife that night like i don't believe that this happened because i the impact and the mindset it was it was huge 
And then you begin giving lectures and giving coaching and you start getting confidence little by little. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another thing that happened important for confidence, an entrepreneur from Argentina, sorry, from Guatemala, called the US, asked for a coach, and they said, hey, we're going to send you this coach from Mexico. He's the closest coach and the only one to speak Spanish. So they sent me to Guatemala. I've been to Guatemala, to the ruins a couple of times, like different mm -hmm. country, all that. And I was sent this entrepreneur, very wealthy guy, picks me up in a armor car with machine guns and everything. And I was like, what? <laughs> and they <laughs> take me everywhere in an armor car and work with his business and got a decent sized business. And then he puts me in contact with his investors. And I just begin getting to know this very big business community in, in Guatemala. And Guatemala is a very small country. There's less than 100 billion a year of revenue, oh, the wow. whole country GDP. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. There's 10, 15 families that they have close to billion dollar businesses in the country. And you get this small consultant with all this experience and then I kind of begin getting connected. Got it. And wow, that was huge. Um, as, a, as a way, and I tell this entrepreneur, he was very important for me as a coach because I was from Mexico and then they invited me to this foreign country and started giving coaching and it was, it was big. And that helped a lot to gain back confidence. And I started getting in projects that were really big projects, 25,000 employees and start getting in board meetings and really big businesses. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was huge learning and, and the confidence building behind that. So I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity that happened and how things got connected. It's just, uh, you're out there and you start to do your best, but then you get lucky and, and a lot of things begin connecting. And then that one that's on top of the other and the other and it, and, and throughout this, Noble. are you, you're coaching oh, using the scaling up framework? Mostly, is that what you, yeah. okay. I, I probably so did do. you have any spin by yourself or anything like that? So I'm, I'm writing a book today that I'm going to publish, uh, over the summer called impact X. And that's what I've been building, uh, as my practice, my, my base scaling up, but I learned a couple of things. First, when I go to a company, I ask them about their systems and they show me their accounting system and production system and customer support system. And I say, okay, show me your CEO system. And this is what do you mean? How do you run as a CEO? What tools do you use? How do you take decisions? How do you communicate decisions? And they're like, uh, 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 no one knows what to say. Everyone kind of baffles, right? So no one really teaches you how to be a CEO. So I start learning from all my clients, everything they did, and I start collecting what works. Uh, I've been a coach today in 2010, 2000, yeah, 2010. So 11 years, and I've learned a lot from really, really, really good entrepreneurs. I've been very lucky coaching mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, doing amazing uh, things. And I've been collecting all this data and, and knowledge, and I've been putting it together. And the other thing that I learned is, as entrepreneurs, they said, hey, give me a best, your best book, and you recommend a book, or a mythology, or a thought leader, <laughs> or something. And it really depends on what stage you are at, and what problems are you having. And so I... My model is understanding there's four stages for you to scale a company. And like whenever you're a, a, a baby, kid, a less than an adult, you have to feed them differently. The attention is different. Like the, the intentions, everything is different, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing happens with your company. Yeah. The employees that you get, the learning, the methodologies, everything. So in the book, and by the way, we'll leave a link below the, the podcast where they could download some slides so they cool. could kind of follow what I'm saying. In each stage, there are certain things you have to get right for you to be able to go to the next stage. Mm -hmm. um, as an example, what I call stage one, one to five employees, 
you have to get your product market fit and you have to redo your strategy. It's all about really understanding if you have something that the, the market will buy or not. Yeah. Right? The only thing that matters on stage one is that you prove it, that you prove that there's a fit for your product and people are willing to pay for it. Oh, I want to, a quick question in the, in the middle as you go through this, Daniel, is how many of the people, because I'm really, there's, I'm really interested to hear the four stages. I'm curious, as you pulled information from people and your experience over the 11 years, how many people knew where they were at? And the reason I ask that is that this, this intentional, which is, you know, one of our favorite words is if you're in stage one, do you know, do you know you're there and why? Right. Cause like when you think about stage one, like you and I were talking as right before we jumped on is what are your intentions? And if you don't know what your intentions are, you're kind of just bumbling around in those different stages. And so maybe I don't know if you want to weave that in the, the couple other stages or. So I'll tell you a story and then I'll explain why. Yeah. Great. So one day I, I've been, I was trying to hire a coach for my business and I call the coach and we're going to have this call kind of to understand if we like to work with each other and all that. And before I start asking him questions, he said, can I ask you a question? And I was like, no, oh, what? Is it your first company? And I said, no, it's my third. And the guy said, okay, great, continue. And I was like, why do you ask the question? And the coach said, well, I don't work with entrepreneurs for, that are being entrepreneurs for the first time. And I was like, why not? He said, because they don't know what they don't know. And they're usually very difficult to be coachable. So you already know what you don't know. So let's move forward. And that was it. And I hired him as a coach and he was very, very instrumental for me for two years. Uh, Rich Rusakov, um, he's an expert on getting loans. And he helped me get this huge loan when I was, I had a credit card in the US with a thousand dollar limit and he got me two and a half million dollars of a loan for my business. <laughs> That's exponentially better than a, a little was, credit card with uh, yeah. some uh, it, was, it was amazing. And no, no collateral. I, I didn't have any collateral in the US. Of course, everything we buy, we put as collateral. Right. But still, like. <laughs> That's crazy. It, there, was, there was no comparison, right? Yeah. Um, and that was his question. So no entrepreneurs, they don't know what they don't know. Yep. You try to get mentors and investors that people kind of guide you, but people don't get it. So when after I kind of built the model, I've been teaching the model and I teach the model to entrepreneurs that are fourth stage and venture capitalists and the rest. And they were like, wow, like yeah. now I understand my last 20 years, why it has mm -hmm. happened the way it has happened. And you just explained to me in an hour. So quick story, I, I teach this model a month ago to a program, a group called Visioneers. Uh, there's an entrepreneur called Evan Pagan has been selling online for many, many years, over $100 million in education. And he put this mastermind in the pandemic and I was invited to the mastermind. Brilliant people. It's crazy the, the level of people in the mastermind. And I presented in December. And after I presented, there was some really good comments and the rest. And that was it. An hour after, I get a, a text from one entrepreneur said, Daniel, you completely gave me a light of what has happened in my life. And he said, I had 225 employees five years ago. I was making $25 million of revenue and I hated my life and my business. I was mm -hmm. miserable. Mm -hmm. I kind of imploded my business. Today I have 16 employees, make $7 million and I'm the happiest ever with my business. I really believe on stage two, whenever you're around, let's say, eight to 12 employees, that's the best combination of revenue, profit to you as the owner, and drama. If you passed 12, the drama just goes through the roof. And then you get to stage three, 
that I call the, the scaling stage. And this stage three has like the value of death in between the stages mm-hmm. that goes, let's say around 15, 12, 15 to around 60, 80. The value of death is really horrible. So if you jump above 12, 15, you have to go all the way until 60, 80. If you're going to stay in the middle, don't even do it. And are you, so you're, you're referring to employees right now. Is there revenue or EBITDA sizes that correlate to that? Because I know like, you know, this, so, different industries are kind of set up differently. There is, uh, but let, let me, I'll give you the, I'll give you one standard. And by the way, it changes if you're in technology and other things, but I'll kind of give you a standard. Okay. The average mid-market or, or small business in the U.S., service business and all that, they do an average of $120,000 revenue per employee per year. So whenever I talk with someone, I always ask them, how many employees do you have? And they say, I have 10 employees. Well, you should be doing around a million, million two. And they look at like, did I show you my financials? And I was like, <laughs> no, but that's the average. Like everyone does that, right? <laughs> Mexico, as an example, my home country, we do $40,000 per employee. India, $18,000 per employee. And, and it's it's a standard. That, that's what the market bears, the education. Like, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Indeed, I had a call on Monday uh, with an entrepreneur in Leon, Mexico. And the guy said, yeah, I have X amount of employees. And I was, I said, you're doing between 75 and 80 million pesos. And the guy was quiet. And he said, I did 77. <laughs> so like, uh, yeah. right. <laughs> the average, law of averages is working out for us. So, imagine, imagine, by the way, imagine the confidence that, you gain when you said, well, you should be doing between this. And the guy's like, yeah. you were exactly <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> and it's just what it is. So we, yeah. we usually tell revenue per employee because depending on your market and your industry, that's the average. As an example, a tech company in the small market should be doing around 200,000 revenue per employee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fortune 500, those are around a million dollars per employee. Okay. Super interesting. I think, I think our old business, Daniel, I want to say it was like 200 or 250 per employee. And that's what, yeah, it's, but you were doing, you got it to 10 million revenue, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. I think you, you were in the second part of stage three. Got it. You were probably around the 150, the average, you were doing a little bit more than that. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. But but around 10 million, you should be doing around 150 per employee in the U S yeah. 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 Cause well at 20 million, we had 115 employees. We had too many employees at that point, but yeah, Yeah. there it goes. So, so what I usually talk, talk about number of employees, one, because your market and industry, but two, the complexity of the operation is the amount of employees. It's not your revenue. The complexity is because the amount of team members that you have. What, so what happened after 12, 15? You have to start getting your first line of managers. And that's where all hell breaks loose. Because you have to, instead of being a leader one-to-one, you have to be a leader one too many. And the complexity of leadership one too many is astronomically more difficult than one to one. So, so, and then gets you to around 60, 80, that you should be doing around 10 million mark. Okay. You have enough margin to hire an amazing line of defense. Totally. A great CFO, great head of operations, great head of sales. Until then, you don't have more enough margin mm-hmm. to hire a, ca- a high caliber team. And that's why that value of death between stage two and stage three is really, really tough between 1215 to 6080. Because you're cash strapped and you're trying to yeah, you're trying to grab the bull by the horns and you're running with it. And, and you have to invest in infrastructure heavily. 
you, you implement SAP and all these kind of new tools that you don't have the money. It, it, so I want to make a couple of comments and I'm really interested to hear how you weave this into your four stages, Daniel. So like some themes that we've been uh, gravitating towards over the last uh, year or so in our business is, so the word, you know, kind of the intentional growth thought process is like, hey, like, what am I trying to accomplish long-term? Like, what's the target valuation, target exit that I might be marging towards? What do I want to do with my role versus the, the financial asset that I've created? And essentially just reverse engineering your plan. But it, it relates a lot to what you're saying because I, we've never obviously articulated like you are, but, you know, growth is expensive. So if you're trying to, so that's one con, or concept about the end in mind, but then this shift in mindset away from annual income to long-term value creation. So how many times you've seen someone where they're optimizing for their distributions and they're not investing versus a plan to reinvest though, that cash flow to fund what you're talking about. And no one really, we see the lack of the financial acumen really hamstrings people because they don't know how to map that out. And so what happens is we see so many times where people don't make a decision, which just means they, they, they don't know how they're accelerating through those four stages. And, and here's the tough part. Um, imagine you are a kid, you're going to be an adult, you're an adolescent. And whenever you're an adolescent with all the hormones and everything, you have a lot of drama, right? Same thing happens in this stage. <laughs> if you don't understand that you're going to go through those hormones and drama, you prefer to come back and be a kid. You, you can't imagine how many companies, they said, this is just too much. I'm going to go back. No joke, quote unquote, from a client of ours that went through one of our training programs. He said they scaled up to 53 employees and he scaled back down to 16 because of that exact reason what you just said. He was making less money with more headaches, so he scaled back down. (laughs) But but, so here's the issue. Because that guy didn't understand, he said, I'm out and went back to 16, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He didn't understand that he probably got needed to go to 60 or 70 and he was past the drama, right? That's that's a difficult part. You need to, if you're able to understand that, then you will take the decision correctly. Because- I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more, Dan, because like I believe that people know why you can deal with the challenges, but if you don't know why it's happening, you're you gonna, you know, the expectations are loose and you just don't know what to do. That's correct. Game over. So whenever you get to around 60 and 80, how many private equities funds are out there that they're dying <laughs> to take your company over your hands? Yeah, begging you to take their money. Yeah, so so they, they, if he was able to take the 65, 70, he was probably going to get a private equity fund to put 10, 15 million into his business and take it off his hands. Oh my gosh. He didn't and want to do it. So I got a couple of questions. Uh, so I love how you enter drama in there. And so I want your defini- definition of drama before I do. Uh, so like when we turned around the family business, there was a lot of drama. Like. Oh, yeah toxic people and like and then it became an amazing we read the zappos culture and the delivering happiness god bless tony and the uh yeah like what is your definition i know what i went through i just i'm curious and like when you use it like how what, what are some of the scenarios so let, let me explain drama on the client side so sometimes you go to a restaurant and there's music the waiters are in a nice mood your food comes on time hot all that and sometimes you go to restaurants and you hear the waiters shouting to each other plates falling the food comes to you late, cold, that's wrong. That's how people feel it, right? Totally. That's how it feels. And it, so if, if you as a client feel like that, inside it's times five, right? Like people get out of the office at five or six and they're exhausted. It's like they, they feel they come in and there's a battle 
you have to be defending yourself and, and, and fighting and not talking to people and protecting. And it's a lot of drama. If you have a team that has great culture, is the right team, whatever, no drama. Everyone knows what you need to do. You have the right money to hire the right people. Completely different. So if you're able to play chess, let's say, and understand your moves, five, tens moves before, and you say, hey, I'm going to need $5 million of investment or $3 million of investment in a year. I start looking for it with time. Like all these kinds of things, you could plan it correctly if you really understand the game. But if you don't understand the game, you realize you need to raise $2 million whenever you're a million dollars in debt uh, and the bank chasing you and all these kinds of things. And that creates a lot of drama. Uh, the, the amount of times that I get, so I've been in a lot of meetings with, with clients that I'm with the CEO and my team, and the CEO becomes rambling and shouting and all that. I've been getting all the text from their employees. Please ask him to get quiet. Like <laughs> people are losing respect. Please save my boss. <laughs> like all the time. <laughs> but we have so much pressure that we need a space to let that pressure go. And we just explode like a cooker. There's a and we just begin shouting and rambling. And it's really painful for your team. It's really painful. Uh, I, I had one of those. I had a meltdown like three years ago. It, it was something dumb, but I was really tired. And the person that did it, my feeling is they didn't care. Right? Mm -hmm. That was what it was really. And I shouted and I was in a really bad mood. And I realized it was not as big. But for me, I made it really big because of my stage at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I called my employee the next day and said, hey, first of all, I'm sorry. Uh, I should not have shouted, blah, blah, blah. You were wrong, but it was still wrong for me to say the way I said it. Mm -hmm. My first question is, do you want to work here? And she said, no, I'm out. There you go. And I said, fine, I'll help you get a job. Mm -hmm. So I called, I, I told her, any company of any of my friends that you want to work, I'll send a letter and I'll call the CEO. And she said, I've always admired this company. Can you help me get a job? I called the CEO and said, this is what happened. She's a great employee. She made this mistake. She doesn't want to work here anymore. I strongly recommend that you hire her. And they said, thank you very much. And it was. Oh, that super was cool. Yeah. I, uh, and I, and I noticed as we were going through because we, I can't, I'm trying, we were probably in that stage three ish. And, and as we, when we were turning around, it was like all that stuff that just kind of the pent up demand of the infrastructure investment, all the people investment, all the stuff that you're talking about. I remember like it was that kind of that first restaurant example you gave Daniel and like this when it was when we were done with that whole process that joy and the happiness and people's ability to just enjoy each other because the data was there and so what and this, this was a pure survival mode for me where like we, like to eliminate the drama because it was so like I mean you when you go home right like okay where's the captain morgan give <laughs> me the diet coke and it was just like if we can eliminate that by just making the data the enemy and the competition the enemy it was and then like i would sit down i'd sit, sit someone across from me and like i like you we're on board with same core values all this but this is what we got to do and then if they didn't accomplish it it was their fault it wasn't my fault and it was just like so the data became kind of my my crutch to not necessarily a crutch but my enabler for that that's why i'm so biased with scaling up and i love the model so much um, I scaling up as my partner says makes everything floats and a lot of things stink, but you need to have a system that will make everything float. So you will understand what stinks. 
And whenever we implement scaling up in a company, you put dashboards and KPIs for everyone. And it's crazy what happens. It's like, there's, there's no hiding. And by the way, I've been, I've been hired several times from family businesses in Latin America or in Africa, stuff like that. A lot of the business, big business are family business. There's no secondary market to sell your business. Mm -hmm. So they keep it in family for several generations. And they're usually three big businesses. And I tell them, disclaimer, like if you implement scaling up, you won't be able to protect anyone. Not even your father, your son, your nephew, no one, right? So I'm just giving you a disclaimer. It's going to be amazing having scaling up, but watch out. Tell me before, and I asked them, tell me if there's any skeleton on the closet because it's going to come out. So just make sure. And I've, I've heard, you can't imagine stories I've heard. Like you, you really can't understand the, the stories I've heard. Indeed, <laughs> quick story, fun story. One day I got hired by the CEO and he said, we're six cousins working in the company <laughs> and three or four need to go. But if I fire my cousins, my grandma will hate me. So I need you first to help me identify and have data why I need to fire my cousins. And then I need you to go and convince my grandma. Mm -hmm. So after we got all the data, I went to have dinner with the grandma myself. I just present the data to her and convince her that it was time <laughs> to get the nephews out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So it's just, and I've had people sleeping with people and creating drama. It's, 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 it's a lot, but well, that's reality. Business is made out of people, right? It's like made of people and people were messy. How many times you, then you've seen a private equity firm that's got this beautiful spreadsheet of valuation, multiple growth, and you're, and you're like, there are people that are supposed to execute these numbers, by the way. <laughs> so in Mexico, as an example, uh, we have now a lot of private equity and venture capital funds uh, that we really had before. We've had an explosion of, of capital. Most of the funds in Mexico are built by finance people, not venture entrepreneurs. Yep. In the US, most of the most successful venture capitals are done by entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs that now they went into the, the money side. So a lot of the funds in Mexico and Latin America are run by finance people that they're not very experts on running companies. Mm -hmm. So in Latin America, I work a lot with the funds. And they said, hey, we're investing 20, 30 million dollars in this company. We're going to give them 30 million plus 300,000 that has Daniel Marcos' name. And you're going to go with the CEO for the last next two years. Yeah. And you're yeah. going to make sure that communication gets done right. Mm -hmm. And I'm sent from the fund kind of to help align interest yeah. between the entrepreneur and the fund. And most of the times I'm on the side of the entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. The fund just asks for things that are not, cannot be delivered. And my job is to come back to them and say, here's the data. It's interesting, Daniel. I've in a previous show episode, I talked about like a Venn diagram, you have finance as one circle and then operations and business running as oh. another. And then there's a little circle in between that are a small percentage of people that understand both. And I don't know how the, the understanding of when I say finance, like valuation, value growth, like multiples, like how, like how important or how do you get people in the understanding those four stages of growth to understand like the, I mean, the numbers are the path to get there, but such few people went to MIT and had a finance degree or something like that. So they, you know, they, they don't want to sell stuff. They know their marketplace is super competitive, but they don't understand that part. So, uh, Quick story. I work a lot with John Ratliff, a scaling up coach, brilliant guy. He grew a company and sold it. And in the process of selling it, he realized the amount of mistakes entrepreneurs make when they're selling it. And it's crazy that we spend years and years and years growing companies 
And whenever we come to the time of selling it, we don't really understand the process and leave a lot of money on the table, but like a lot of money on the table. And I work with John precisely with that. Every time we get a company he wants to sell, I send them to John, he does that. And when we sit down with an entrepreneur and kind of understand their value, and it's just, they have no idea what they have in their hands. They have no idea how the markets work and how to work with the private equity groups. And, mm-hmm. and and it's like, we've seen numbers that you just can't believe that the entrepreneur said, yeah, my company is worth 20. And when we come and value it and really understand what it is, it's probably worth 75. Mm-hmm. And they just have no idea. And they said, no, if you give me 20, I'll be happy. Indeed, my wife says, if you give me 10, I'll be happy. Or like, it's worth 70 or 80. Right, right. Because they don't understand the, the value of the asset. That's correct. All right, Daniel, I know we're running short on time here. Uh, this has been a fun conversation. You got your internal internal team blasting you. So let's wrap it up. You're going to have a, a bunch of links in the show notes. Uh, on so the- I'll give you one link uh, for you to download a lot of slides. Yep. And on the slides, I kind of show the four stages, what you have to do in each stage to get it right and go to the next stage. And then there's uh, four or five slides, how you have to evolve from entrepreneur to CEO. Awesome. We become the bottlenecks of our businesses. We are the biggest bottleneck everywhere in our companies. So here's just the the second part of the model. You have to fix three things or work in three things. First, work on you. And you have to have all these tools to help you grow and and become a CEO and a better leader. So you could really build a great team. People say, I want to build a great company. And I was like, you cannot build a great company if you don't first build a great team. And if first you become a great leader. Mm -hmm. Like there's two steps before. So there's a lot of tools for you to become a better leader. There's all these tools for you to build a great team. And then there's these tools to, for you to build a great company. Mm-hmm. So we have this grid of 48 things of what you have to do in each stage in these three things. Oh, sweet. That's how awesome. improve. So, um, yes. Two, two questions. Uh, what does the word intentional mean to you? Intentional. That you understand why you're doing what you're doing. Um, a lot of people don't understand why they do what they do. I love it. What's the best place to get in touch with you and all of the material that you guys are, and the book, all the stuff that you guys are? So uh, my book's going to be called Impact X. It's going to be published in the summer. I will give uh, the link below for you to get some slides. And uh, after the slides, you're going to get an email with a link. And we have like a two hour and a half video uh, of me getting all the first part of the module oh, awesome. uh, of Impact X for free. I'm just giving away the words. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a blast. Same to you. Thank you, Ryan. And we have to have a longer conversation, you and I. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I absolutely love the concept of the four stages. It provides a roadmap that gives you an idea of where you're at in your journey as an entrepreneur. And then you can make an intentional decision to stay at the stage you're in because you like the perfect blend of complexity, drama, and profit, or you can double down, cross that chasm and dominate your industry. And growth is expensive. And we all know that as we've been talking about this show. So just making that intentional decision will give you happiness because you know why you're at the current stage and you're dealing with the current challenges. The Arcona Intentional Growth online course can help you clarify your path and what makes sense for you. You can kind of relate it to these stages because if you understand what it's going to take to dominate your industry by looking at your growth projections, looking at what the value of the business will be and how that impacts what you want, you might decide to do it. 
But once you pat, uh, chart that path forward, you might say, hey, I actually don't want that headache and those, that drama because the money's not worth it, whatever it might be. But it's regardless of what you choose, it's your choice. So go check out our course. It's arcona.io. Check it out. Intentional growth. You can do it yourself or you can do it with us for four coaching calls. And I believe that you'll have the clarity on what is right for you and then how to clear the path to go get what you actually want instead of just hoping and wishing and dreaming. Thanks for tuning in. I will see you next week.